A simple flight to move an airplane from one airport to another. A 13-mile flight. A familiar Cessna 182. What could possibly go wrong? We'll find out on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Flying Magazine's I Laughed podcast, brought to you by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. I'm your host, Rob Ryder. And my guest on this episode is Dr. Tor Schwader, who is planning to fly from Detroit to Cincinnati to speak at a symposium. We'll find out what he learned about flying from that in just a moment. But before we do, let me share a word from our sponsor, Avemco Insurance. For 60 years, Avemco has been the only aircraft insurance company that lets you speak directly with a decision maker empowered to approve coverage based on your unique situation. Call 800-338-8705 for a free quote and you'll save an instant 5% for being an ILAF listener. Save even more for recurrent training, a new rating, or participating in a Fast Teams Wings course. Call 800-338-8705 or visit avemco.com slash flying. Now, I learned about flying from that. Dr. Tor Schwader, thank you for being with us here on ILAF today. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing you about your story. A pleasant day to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to give you my story. Now, you have a lot going on in terms of what you do flying-wise, but your business is actually as a, as a pediatrician. Is that correct? Actually, I do pediatric dermatology or kid skin. Been doing that since about 1984. We're a fairly small specialty. There's uh, several hundred of us in the United States uh, growing all the time, but still we're few and far between. So I'm one of those strange people that can stand um, screaming kids with stinky diapers and worried mothers in small rooms for long periods of time. So go figure. Well, that uh, handling stressful <laughs> situations probably is then a part of your DNA and probably health helpful for you in terms of flying, right? Very, very, very much so. Uh, so it is an interesting story I got into flying. My uh, father, may he rest in peace, was picked up flying back in the 60s, back when there wasn't even Loran. You just went from radio beacon to radio beacon. Um, he flew everything he could get his hands on, single engines, twin engines, gliders, hot air balloons, float wow. planes. Um, and that wasn't his business. That was just his fun thing. So as a little kid... I would sit right seat. I can still remember it now. It was probably a twin Piper of some sort. And they didn't have autopilot, mind you. You had to hand fly everything. So he would let me fly, and I couldn't even see over the calling. And every so often, he'd tap on the instrument with the back of his pen. And, and i go, oh, sorry, Dad. And I got off the heading, or I was too high, or I was too low. Or, um, so that was my introduction to flying. Uh, fast forward several decades when, wait for it, the college <laughs> tuitions were paid off, comma. The mortgage was paid off, comma. And the kids had left home, comma. And I finally had enough time and money and still the willingness to learn to fly. So I only actually started flying six, seven years ago. I have about a 1,000 hours on in my logbook. Oh, that's great. So you had a huge hiatus from being a kid. And you, you harbored that dream of flying for all those years? 
I did. I did. I did. I remember my wife yelling at me, oh, you want to go learn flying? Just get out of here and go flying because I was like grousing about having to stay home and do something. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So you got out of honeydew by going flying. Is that is that what you did? Correct. (laughs) I wouldn't say that out loud. But yes, Um, it's when she saw me coming back from the lesson, uh, how excited I was and the smile on my face. Now, I have to give you another slight story. And that was who did I learn from initially? Well, it turns out that there is a cadre of pilots embedded in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. No, come on. Yes. So I was having my bow rehaired. I play violin also. Oh. I had my bow rehaired by a fellow, and I was talking to him eight years ago or so, saying, I've always wanted to learn to fly. And he pauses and looks up at me and says, do you know that I'm a CFI? I went, this is Bruce Smith, who is still a CFI and a terrific guy and one of my flying buddies. And Bruce looks up at me and says, do you know I'm a CFI? And I almost dropped my jaw. You could see my jaw open. I said, when are we going to start? And he said, how about tomorrow afternoon? And I said, you're on. So, so in the midst of getting your, your now, for those. Violin bow. Pilot, yeah, violin bow. Right. Violin bows, good violin bows can cost a couple of grand, right? Uh, yes. And uh, of course, I've had mine since I was about 13. So I've, God knows what they cost. But yes. They can range from several hundred to many thousand, depending on who makes them. But that's and then you have there. real horse hair on it that that, that has do. to be stretched in there, and the tension has to be just right. So when you play, you get a proper tone, right? Correct. I'm surprised you know about all this. Yes. Well, as a musician too, I and and uh, living nearby, uh, having neighbors who were string players and working with them over the years, uh, I. I have the greatest respect for those people who can keep a violin in tune. As a guitarist, I have frets. You don't. But no, that it's, attention... It's, it's, it's not too dissimilar than flying an ILS by There hand. you go. That's what I was going to go for. <laughs> the attention to detail is incredibly important. Did that help you? Um, I would say yes. I mean, just for the years and years of practicing and going and getting things just right and hitting them on the nose. And also staying calm... I, I had a Russian teacher. He was he was one of the greats, and but he was also incredibly strict. And he would scream and hit me and <laughs> bend my fingers and swear at me in Russian. And uh, and the answer is, uh, you learn to just smile and keep going. So you know the the, the stress didn't fa- phase you. Well, Tor, you were going to have a short flight. Uh, an easy flight from Michigan down to Cincinnati Lincoln Field, uh, and that. You ran into a problem the day before the flight. Tell me, set me up on the story for that and what the problem ended up being. So I got invited down by a colleague of mine to give a lecture at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital to the dermatology department there. And the lecture was on Wednesday evening. And I had a meeting Wednesday morning and I was going to leave right at noon. And I had a fellow member of my club come down with me because he had a son who happened to be in the area. So we had it all ranged. We were going to meet at the airport right, right in the early afternoon, fly down to Lincoln, no sweat. Tuesday, before the Wednesday flight, I get a call out of the blue by one of the leaders in my club. As an aside, I belong to the Troy Oakland Pilots Association, which is a great group of guys who always look after each other um, you know, fill up the tanks and keep things clean. That's all I can say. It's a wonderful group. Go. So the the president of the group calls him and he says, Tor, if you haven't noticed it, the airport is closing tomorrow because they're repairing 
some asphalt people out here are going to be putting asphalt down and they're going to close the airport. If you want to take that trip on Wednesday, you better move the plane today. So they're looking out for you. But they you've got are, to... God bless them. Because I would have been driving like a maniac all the way down there. <laughs> so, Four of course, at the middle of clinic, I have patients all day. It's the fall. It's October. And it's an overcast day. So I start. If you ever remember that wonderful little quiz about a man, a wolf, and a duck, and a sack of grain are in a boat, and you have to go from one side of the river to the other, and you can't leave any two alone because the, the duck will eat the grain and the wolf will eat the duck. And you I, have to figure I have out how not to get heard that, but I, I, but, I'm, but I think I'm going to find out. <laughs> any case, I'm trying to figure out how are we going to get like the plane there, and someone's going to pick me up, and then we're going to go back, and I said, oh, my God. So I, I in between patients, like calling people and texting people, Finally, the only thing I can figure out is I have to take the plane from Oakland, Troy, Victor Lima, Lima, and I choose Pontiac because it's nearby, 13 nautical miles. It's like a five-minute, six-minute trip. You don't even get up before you have to get down. And we do it all the time. We go back and forth to get parts from there, people going back and forth in the plane. There's a big festival in December where we distribute presents called Operation Good Cheer, runs out of Pontiac. Great place. So I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll take the plane and the other guy's going to go with me. will meet me there with his car. And you told me just a moment ago that it was an overcast day. Uh, the it question, I beg the question. Okay. There's the, oh my. It was IFR. It was probably low IFR. Now that I think about it. Fortunately, it was warm enough. So there's no ice. Now I'm at work, so I don't have my earphones and I don't have my iPad. I, and so I, print out some charts and I arrange one of the other good, nice guys in the club leaves a set of cans for me at, at, at the plane. And this is a Cessna 182 RG. It's an older plane built in the late seventies, has some updated electronics, has two, had two, we sold the plane since then, Garmin, uh, uh, GNS 430s, 430s, I think yeah. they were, uh -huh. um, a double set of those and, um, uh, you know, adjustable prop, nice, strong engine. So, and, but you realize if you don't have your iPad, if you I really if you fly with an iPad a lot, which I do now, it's like being a musician and someone takes your music away when you don't have your iPad. There is you something know? we do become uh, dependent upon that thing, and and for flight or Garmin Pilot, whatever it happens to be. So you don't have, so you're one shy, but you did do a printout. You have your approach plates, so you're going to be plates. able to get to PTK without any difficulty, even though it's right. IFR. Right. Now, I will tell you that we always fly the localizer back course into PTK because there's hardly any localizer back courses around. And it's kind of fun to do. And you practice it all the time because, you know, it beats going for the $100 hamburger someplace else. So, And with I, reverse sensing, you, it's something that's it's a it's a skill that has to be practiced when you're doing reverse sensing. Right. Right. So guess what? So I, I, I filed the flight plan. I go to the end of the runway and I'm sitting there like taking deep breaths and trying to, I plug in everything into the Garmin and a, another plane lands. I never forget this, a big plane, I think it was a Pilatus. This is a small field I'm at. It's like 5,000 foot and there's buildings all around it. And the Pilatus turns the end of the runway and I suddenly realize that like his wingtip might clip my propeller. So I actually look slowly and he kind of creeps around and I wave at him out the window with my thumbs up. And so I avoid that first catastrophe, oh. get lined up. At this uh, 
Victor Lima Lima, Oakland Troy doesn't have a tower. So you have to call the Detroit approach. You call the Detroit approach on, on your landline. They give you a release. I get that all set up, put on these cans that were loaned to me and launch. And I'm almost immediately engulfed in a whiteout. Now, I'm assuming that you were prepared for that and you made the transition onto the panel without difficulty. Correct. Problem number one solved. At that point, about 800 hours in Michigan, a lot of IFR. It, It doesn't scare me, but it does put you on high alert. So I get to Detroit. I got the backrest plugged in and the guy gives me a fix. I'm going, what? Wait, what? What? And I hadn't realized in the interim between the last time I run this and now they had added an RNAV 2.7. And why I didn't know that or see that when I printed out the charts is one of those little mysteries. Uh, so I'm going, wait, what? Wait, what? No, no, no. I want to do the back horse because the needle's already starting to move. It's that fast, right? So the guy, there's like this pause. I'm going, oh, shit, I'm going to run right past here. <laughs> And finally, it's okay, fine. You know, localizer, you're, you're clear for localizer back horse. So I turn in and everything should be lined up. And all of a sudden, I realize that one of the needles of the CDI is pointing left and one is pointing right. And they're both set to the, to, to the correct sensing. So you've, and, but you've also checked the, have you checked the ID? So you're not tuning in the wrong thing? You, you're yeah, getting I, the check, right... I check the ID and it's like a moment it's a moment. Actually, I should back up one second. Before that happened, I looked over and I saw that I hadn't latched the right door. Oh, my. And I, so I quick latched the right door. But think about that for a second. Wait a minute. I, didn't I do the checklist? Didn't I read it all carefully? Like you always think you do, but you realize when you do things different times of the day and you're tired and how if I skip that, shit, what else did I skip, you know? Okay, so... Now, tell me about this 182RG, because is, is this the only plane you fly? No, the, the club has four planes. Oh, they you had, fly they, them uh, all? The RG at that point was the most expensive to fly and the fastest. And then they had another 182 um, fixed wheels. And then they have a Piper Archer, which is sort of a trainer. And they have a 172, which is very much a trainer without any bells and whistles. Now, they're all different avionics. So you have to fly them all if you're going to be used to them all in IFR weather. We'll just put that one aside for now. Okay. Back to we, my story. Yeah, we, well, I, I, we got to get back to that because I, I have a feeling that's going to play into the uh, into the scenario. Okay, back to your story. You uh, you I have turn on the final approach course, which I'm you know I'm using. I'm looking at the wet compass. I'm looking at the CDI. I'm looking at the Garmin. But one needle's pointing left, one needle's pointing right. And I think to myself, oh, wait a minute. In this, in this plane, on this particular avionics, if I set it for the actual course, is it real sensing or is it reverse sensing? And, and in I, other words, an automatic switchover between uh, normal sensing for a straight ILS and versus the reverse sensing for the back course. Um, and so when I practice with the hood on, I would sneak a little window, look out the window to see which way I was and, and then put my mind in the right order. At this point, I looked at both these garments. I realized one of them was set on V-Lock and one of them was set on GPS. And since I wasn't on a GPS, I pushed that button off and then the needles made sense. They both pointed the same direction. 
What was going through your mind when you realized that you had made the mistake and you fixed it? Were you then relieved or were you still then arguing or condemning yourself for having made the mistake? Um, I was just factoring in all of the variables trying to keep the sunny side up, the shiny side up. But I, the thing that flashed in my mind was one of my uh, CFI instructors, the CFII instructors, one who taught me instrument, always used to say in his gravelly voice, ah, traitor, that's the kill switch. What do you mean, Mike? Well, if you don't push that button, you'll end up dying. I said, well, that's comforting. So <laughs> he would always call that the kill switch. Anyway, I've been, don't forget, I don't have my iPad now. Because usually I just follow my course in the iPad. I'm looking at that thin little magenta line on the Garmin with my little plane icon over it. And so I could tell if I moved right. I'm still in whiteout, by the way, in complete whiteout. I cannot see a thing. And hand I, flying the airplane, correct? And hand flying the airplane. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about the autopilot, did we? Um, I didn't even actually think about it until afterwards because I've done this so many times without the autopilot. I just fly, intercept the glide, so land, like no big deal. In retrospect, I should have said it. The question is, why not? Well, I should first say it's an ancient autopilot that came from the 1980s. Um, it was two-axis, but it, it wasn't sophisticated at all is the type of thing that you had to be all lined up before you could turn it on. And I've had some bad experiences with it in previous flights, fortunately it was VFR, where I engaged the autopilot and the, and the trim wheel would spin and, and the plane would jerk up. And the first time this happened, it happened to me over Lake Erie, which is no fun at all. And I pushed with all my might, the, uh, my hands forward to keep the plane level until wow. I could find the fuse switch for the autopilot and pull it. And ever since then, I've been very leery of that autopilot. I would make sure everything was completely trim and the plane was very steady before I set it and everything seemed to be fine. Um, it, this was a problem that they tried to address in the club that was had happened to other people. But that was probably part of the reason I also didn't set the autopilot. I didn't want to be in the clouds and having things jerk around. Well, let me ask you this, Tor. Is there not, was there not on the yoke or near the throttle or something, an autopilot disconnect switch rather than having to reach over and pull a breaker? Yes. And that did sure. not function? No, no, no. It's just at that time when it first happened, I, my eye fell on the breaker, so I grabbed that first rather than reach around my thumb, but you could have done either. I gotcha. Okay. That's, that, that's a very interesting thing that you would know exactly what breaker was in what position, because I have found that if I were to need to pull a breaker for a particular piece of equipment in my plane, I would have to look for it. I don't I don't know. I know where my switches are, but I don't know the name of, of and, and assignment of each particular breaker. That's pretty it, cool that you it's knew probably, that. Yeah, I'll, I'll assign it to luck or good eyesight <laughs> that day. Um, in any case, I'm, I'm going down the slope. And don't forget, when you're, I localize your back course, it doesn't give you altitude. It just kind of gives you right and left. So I'm keeping a really close eye on the altimeter as I'm going down, going down. And this particular one... In this back course, the um, straight and localizer 27 is a 1440 with a mile out. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, how low am I going here? Because at some point you got to pull the plug uh, and figure out where you're going to go next. Is any good IFR pilot? As fortunately, I broke through probably about 1800 or or, or so feet above the ground, um, and. Uh, I could see the runway and, you know, put, put the wheels down 
and landed without a problem. But everything happens very fast when stuff goes wrong. Uh, and it's really good to just practice. I would say to all my colleagues out there, see it, uh, do a lot of IFR practice. And I go out on cloudy days. I know a lot of people who are afraid to go out on cloudy days. And I purposely go out on cloudy days and get myself in those situations that I have to get myself out of. I usually often go with an instructor, sometimes by myself. Uh, but I think practice is really inherent to being a safe flyer. Tell you what, we'll take a short break, then we'll come back and discuss what you learned about flying from that right after this word from Avemco. The folks at Avemco Insurance have been passionate about pilot safety for 60 years. That's why they sponsor the FAA's Fast Team Wings program and support I Learned About Flying From That. Avemco even rewards safe pilots with reduced premiums of up to 10%. You can instantly save 5% just for listening to iLaft. Call 800-338-8705 today or visit avemco.com slash flying and tell them you're a listener. Now, back to iLaft. I learned about flying from that. We're back with Dr. Tor Schwader, who had a hop, skip, and a jump that got a little, uh, a little hop, skip, a heartbeat skip uh, as, you were, uh, as you were trying to get on that 13-mile flight uh, from VLL to PTK over to Pontiac. Uh, you obviously learned some lessons, Tor, from, from what you went through on that very short but eventful flight. Kind of run down how you've processed those things and what you learned about flying from that. All right. I come up with the half dozen things. Um, first, pull all the charts and look at your flight and decide which ones are the minimum. So one of the mistakes I made is they had, I added an RNAV, which I didn't know had lower minimums. It would have given me altitude as well as lateral guidance. Uh, next, uh, use the autopilot. Even if it's a short flight, it will reduce your bandwidth of things you have to worry about. That would have saved me dipping right and left a lot. Now, you, know, you say dipping right and left. Were, were you, were, you were task-saturated, I'm assuming, and that's yes. why you're, if you're saying dipping right and left, in other words, you were not keeping the wings uh, as level as you had preferred or would have preferred? I'm sure not. I remember looking at the, my little line my little airplane over the magenta line in the Garmin and I was right and then I was left and then I was right and then I was left and it's like, okay, well, I got to get this thing steady and stabilized for an, an, an approach. Uh, the third thing is pre-flight in advance of the day of the flight, just in case someone decides they're going to put asphalt on your home airport and shut everything down for a day. Uh, the next is I would advise all my colleagues to practice in bad weather don't just go out on the sunny days because one of these days you're going to be stuck someplace, you're going to be in the clouds and it's a lot of neurons fire when you are in stress and not all of them will be helpful. So it's nice to recruit as many centers in your brain when you want to do a task properly while all the ones are firing that are saying, look out, look out. Yeah. Now, let me let me go back to something you referred to when you took off and took off into the soup. Uh, I believe Mac McClellan wrote an article uh, that I read who talked about 
launching into IFR and the most critical time, uh, people say, what if you have an engine failure on takeoff? That is very rare, but the, the thing that is more dangerous is the transition from VFR and looking at the, uh, seeing the ground and then transitioning onto the panel when you go IFR. Uh, is that something that you have practiced on a regular basis? And I'm, and I'm assuming it was not an issue for you on this flight. Um, well, yes, I do practice it. Matter of fact, I was just up today doing that. And that exact transition is a real one. You have to sort of get all your concentration down on your instruments and believe in your instruments and realizing which input you're doing, whether you know, right and left it up and down and how it reacts in the instruments. Um, I would say, yes, pra practice that. You enter it and the risk of popping your nose high and stalling is probably real. If If you suddenly close to the ground get into IMC. That's a, that's a big one, I think, that anybody can take, uh, take to the bank on that. Okay, what? tell me what else you learned. So uh, uh, the next I would say is uh, know your Garmin. <laughs> know your autopilot. Is it reverse sensing? Does it automatically correct? As I said, we have four planes, and some of them have ancient steam gauges, and they don't uh, reverse sense. I mean, they give you an alternate back course unless you know to set the needle to the incoming course instead of the one you're flying. Uh, and those are things you should figure out before you take off. And I guess the most important thing is to stay calm because panic doesn't get anywhere. Uh, and it's e a lot easier said than done if you're the only one up there in the soup. And you learned a lot about flying from that, Tor Schwader. Thank you very much for being part of ILAF today. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you. I look forward to seeing you up in the Detroit area when I come up for the air show up there because I come up to Detroit several times a year going to Ypsilanti. And on my way up there, sometimes I will actually shoot some approaches at airports en route uh, just to get uh, just to to uh, get the kind of practice that you're talking about. Maybe it's in good weather, but uh, Having to fly the hand fly the airplane through all of that is uh, is an important skill that I think you would uh, suggest that everybody master. I agree, and come visit anytime. Happy to show you the back course two seven at Pontiac. Sounds great, Torch Waiter. Thanks for being on. I laughed. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. As we close out this episode of I laughed, I'd like to invite you to subscribe. Go to www.flyingmag.com and select the I Laughed podcast from the drop-down menu. Or you can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. For Vemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.